You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to specifically be in verses 14 and 15 today. Um, I'm going to read again the first part of the chapter to set the context so that we can understand these verses in the context of what Paul's saying in the rest of the chapter. I'm going to tell you up front that the verses that we're looking at today are not necessarily difficult to understand what the meaning is. So there's not a whole lot of new, in-depth stuff that we've got to strive to comprehend. The difficulty is in applying it. And so I'm telling you that up front. It's not difficult to understand what Paul is saying necessarily. The difficulty comes in trying to apply on an everyday basis, especially in the context of church life, what Paul is trying to communicate to us. Looking again at chapter 5, verse 1, again, this is a church plant that Paul has started in Thessalonica. Um, He was only there for a short amount of time. So you've got young believers as far as how long they've been saved. But based on how Paul writes, we see a lot of spiritual depth, which is a testimony, one, to the Holy Spirit and the work that he's done in their heart. And then secondly, it's a testimony to how hard uh, Paul worked at discipling these new believers. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So Paul kind of ends that eschatological passage. It's all about second coming in times. He's giving instruction to these believers about how to handle that, how to live in accordance with that. And then he wraps up that discussion by saying, encourage one another with this. Build one another up with this information. And so we've been emphasizing over the past few months of looking at this chapter and the chapters before that when Paul talks about eschatology, when Paul talks about the end times, he's not doing so just to wet our curiosity. He's not doing it just to fill our head up with knowledge of charts and and, uh, opinions and theories about what it looks like in the end times. He very carefully chooses inspired information that comes directly from the Holy Spirit with a specific purpose, and that purpose is to encourage and build up Christians in the midst of an ever-changing society, ever-changing circumstances in the course of just difficulties that come into our life. This church, in their context, they're being persecuted for their faith greatly. They've got Jewish people who are still angry about Jesus, who are still angry about the message that Jesus brought, and they're wanting to destroy that message. They thought they got rid of it when Jesus was put on the cross, 
But then this whole idea that Jesus was back from the dead started circulating, and now their their plans have been thwarted, and, and God's having or they're having to try to squash it now as it begins to spread with these church plants. And so they're trying to kill these people. They're trying to persecute these people. They're trying to beat them into submission. Stop saying those things. Stop saying those things about Jesus and we won't hurt you anymore. So Paul writes and says, look, better times are coming. You stay faithful. You hold fast. You stay true. Better times are coming when Jesus returns. Now we go into the end of chapter 5 and Paul kind of jumps back to present day life and says, now that stuff's going to happen one day. We don't know when. Until that day happens, here's what we need to do in the meantime. Let's don't get caught with our heads in the clouds, always thinking about going to be with Jesus. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. But we also have daily responsibilities, things we got to do right now. Don't lose sight of that. And so I told you last week that he begins to give some instructions about what church life is supposed to look like until the end. This isn't church life just for Thessalonica. This is church life for Sovereign Hope. This is what our church is supposed to be. This is what our church is supposed to do until Jesus returns. I told you last week some initial thoughts that I have on this passage is that the end isn't here yet. We have responsibilities to tend to now. How do we deal with sin problems in the church until Jesus returns? We'd love for everybody to be perfect. We'd love to have perfect unity and fellowship and peace like we long for on the day of Jesus. When all of us get new bodies and all of us get, get rid of our sin natures and everything's dealt with and done away with and we're sanctified and glorified. But how do we deal with imperfect church members in the meantime? How do we live in unity and peace knowing that we're full of sin still? That we have sinful tendencies. We fight sin on a daily basis. We've got the Holy Spirit who's empowering us, but we're still, we're still given to that sin at times. And how do we deal with that? Satan wants to stop our church we must be proactive and on guard. I told you that Paul's already related the fact that Satan was trying to destroy this church. We don't know when and how and how often, but we can assume that Satan wants to stop what we want to do here at Sovereign Hope. And we want to be proactive against that. We want to fight for unity, recognizing that Satan wants to destroy the unity of the church. We fight for unity. We, be, we need to be proactive in that. Paul gives us instructions now about how to edify, how to build up. He told us in verse 11, encourage, build up. Now he tells us how to do it. And we came to verse 12 last week. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we saw three aspects for each. We saw the relationship of leadership to the flock. And then three things that the leadership is supposed to do to the flock. And then we saw the relationship of the flock to leadership. And three things that the flock is supposed to do in response to biblical leadership. We saw last week that it tells us to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We said that leadership works hard. The elder leadership has to labor in this church and we should respect them for that. We've got two guys that are pursuing elder candidacy right now, pursuing the, the responsibility of being elders in this church. They are to show their qualifications to you by working hard, laboring hard, the Bible says. And it was a very vivid word that we saw in the Greek. It's the idea of muscles rippling, sweat happening, exhaustion happening because of how much effort is being poured into leading and shepherding this church. Leadership is to labor hard. They are to exercise authority. He says, you respect those who are over you. That there is authority that comes with elder leadership. 
that we've been tasked as elders in this church. We've been tasked with the responsibility to give an account for the souls of this church on judgment day. So we have a responsibility to lead and shepherd your souls through the power of the Holy Spirit, in humility, in submission to the authority, Jesus Christ, who is ultimately over this church. And then lastly, we are told to provide instruction as leadership. It says those that admonish you. And we're going to look at that word admonish again uh, today in our text. But we were told to, um, to see that leadership works hard, exercises authority, and provides instruction. And then the flock is to respect their leadership, to esteem their leadership, to submit to their leadership. And we even looked at, as Paul says in Galatians, what it means to, to esteem and to respect. Those words mean to go out of bounds, like go beyond your limits. And I showed you the passage in Galatians where Paul affirms that church in Galatia. He says, you guys were willing to give me your eyeballs. That if I had had need of your eyes, you were willing to cut them out and give them to me. You loved me so much. And I challenge you that, that we want to be the type of church as we continue to raise up elders in our church, that we have a flock who loves the leadership so much that they're willing to love beyond the normal bounds of love. That there's such an intense love for the, the, the leadership that God has placed over this church. We said that ultimately, when those things are working together rightly, when the leadership's doing what it's supposed to do, when the flock is doing what it's supposed to do, we see the result that Paul gives us at the end of verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. When this is, when this is functioning properly, there's peace within the church. Um, a peace that draws other people to the gospel to enjoy real peace with our Heavenly Father. And I told you that if we're always trying to fight for peace within the church, if we're always dealing with arguments and disagreements and lack of submission to leadership and, and disunity, if we're always having to fight for peace within the church, it takes away our attention of trying to pursue peace outside the church, that we want our focus and efforts to be outside of sovereign hope, where we're drawing more people to this flock. We're saying, come find peace with your heavenly father through the gospel, that we focus our efforts outwardly and we're not always having to deal with in-house problems. And unfortunately, a lot of churches have to deal with those in-house problems regularly. And it always draws their attention away from being mission-minded. And even when they attempt to be mission-minded, the, the reputation of that church precedes those evangelistic efforts to where it's, I don't want any part of that. If that's what it means to be changed by the gospel, I don't want that kind of change. That's not, the, that's not matching up with what you're telling me about the gospel. I know what your church is like. I know the reputation of, our, of your church. So we need our church's reputation to precede us in a way that, that allows our message to be amplified. It allows it to be accepted because it's, yes, I've heard about your church. I want to be a part of that. That's what was happening in the churches in Acts. Now Paul gives us instructions about how we're to interact within the church together. We saw flock and leadership last week. Now it's flock to flock. The relationship of the flock to flock. It says in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good and to one another and to everyone. We see that pattern of three once again here when we deal with our relationship to each other. We admonish the idle, we encourage the faint hearted, and we help the weak. 
We see in this passage that the responsibility of pastoral care is placed not just on the pastors, but on every member. He says, we urge you brothers to do this. Sometimes we put the pressure to, to admonish and to help and to encourage strictly on the shoulders of the pastor or strictly on the shoulders of the elder leadership. We say, that's your responsibility. You take care of the flock. You take care of people that are struggling in our church. You go see them. You go visit them. You help them through that. But Paul says, he's speaking to the church here. He says, brothers, not leaders, brothers, you have this responsibility. In order for true peace to be attained in this body, it will require it will require the efforts of every one of us working together. The message in a nutshell for today, healthy brothers and sisters, identify the struggling brothers and sisters and help them get involved and help them. First thing we come to admonish the idol, admonish the idol, the definition for it, for um, the idol Who are these idle people? The Greek word means undisciplined, insubordinate, a soldier breaking ranks. So a a lot of the commentators said that the the word idle is not really the best translation because that typically conjures up in our minds people that are just um, sitting around doing nothing all the time. That could be the case here. We're not given clear identification for what these idle people were doing. Um, But the actual Greek word means someone who is um, undisciplined, insubordinate, a soldier who's breaking ranks. It's someone who is no longer performing their duties or they're not honoring their responsibilities anymore. Someone who's kind of broken ranks. It's someone who's busy doing the wrong things. You might could call these people the loafers, people who are out of step with the direction everyone else is headed, people who have slowed down in their pursuit of Jesus. I think all those ideas are are consistent with what he's talking about here. Admonish the idol. It's people who have broken rank, people who are no longer doing what they're supposed to do. Hebrews 10, 23 gives us an idea of what we're supposed to be doing as as a church, as church members together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are people who have, who have stopped that pursuit of Jesus, who have slowed down in that pursuit of Jesus These are people that maybe aren't um, attending regularly anymore. People that have kind of fallen off to the wayside. They've they've gotten involved in other things maybe. Other things of this world have started to yank them away, and maybe they're not even aware of it. It's not that these are people are trying to fight sin. It's that they've almost become blinded to their sin. They've broken ranks, and they're kind of doing their own thing. Um, Probably the best example in the context of our church is Lizzie. Um, We brought Lizzie to you months ago said, look, we've tried to follow the Matthew 18 pattern with Lizzie. We've tried to send people one at a time, two at a time, multiple times, elders going to her, trying to show her that she's become blinded to our sin, to her sin. And then we shared it with you as a church, and we said, go get Lizzie. Do everything that you can to communicate to Lizzie the love that this church has for her, the love that Jesus has for her. And we continue to do that. And I continue to encourage you as brothers and sisters, admonish the idol in our church. Help them to see that 
They need protection for their souls and they become blinded to it. They don't see it anymore. Paul says you admonish the idol. We see a little bit of what Paul means in the context of their church in 2 Thessalonians 3. The second letter to this church, he, he comes back to this idea. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we are not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So you had that mindset that I've, I've shared with you before, that some of these people had become so enamored with Jesus coming back they kind of stopped doing their daily responsibilities. Oh, if Jesus come back, let's quit the job. Let's, let's stop working so hard. Let's just sit around and wait for that glorious day. Oh, it's been a week since I quit my job and um, I'm hungry. Like I need food. My pantry's empty now. I need to call on somebody to, to give me some food. I don't have any money anymore. And this has become a problem in that early church. They had misunderstood the teachings about the end times. They were over-preparing for it in the sense that they thought it was imminent to the point that they could just neglect all their responsibilities. And now they were having to rely on people that hadn't followed suit and done that by quitting their job. Paul says, don't be idle. Don't stop your regular responsibilities. Don't break ranks with what you have responsibility to do. This also could be people who are no longer using their spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about how our spiritual gifts have been given to us to use on each other, to use for mutual upbuilding in the church. So idle people could be those that have started to neglect their own obligation to use spiritual giftedness to serve within the church. It may be those that have stopped using their money rightly. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 8, Adam brought us a sermon not too long ago on this passage it says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia, this being one of those churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That act of grace that he's talking about is that you relinquish your hold on your money. You stop using your money strictly for yourself and you let, let go of it. You begin to use it for the kingdom. We've talked about the benefits of pooling our money together as a church, the, the, the greater things that we can do when we pool our money together. So we could have a situation here where these people have stopped using their money rightly and they've begun, begun to hoard their money or use their money strictly for themselves. Or it could be that these people are no longer supporting leadership. A lot of different possibilities here for what exactly was happening in that church. But what we are told on its simplest form is that those who begin to break rank... Those who begin to function differently than, than everybody else in the church or differently from the tradition that we see, receive in Scripture were to admonish them, admonish them. Now, what does the word admonish mean? What does the word admonish mean? It means a caring warning, a caring warning. 
the idea being that we don't just come in like a bull in a china shop and just start spouting off at the mouth about how somebody's wrong for their actions. It's a caring warning. There's, there's, there's concern behind it, absolutely. There, there's definitely the concern for change. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just, this is my opinion on the matter. There's a strict warning there, but it comes saturated with love. There's intense care that, that's exhibited there. Uh, maybe the fact that I'm not coming to you for the very first time ever to talk to you about this. Maybe we have some type of relationship. I've demonstrated love to you in the past so that you know this is out of love and not just out of pride. It's probably not good to go admonish the idol and go talk to somebody for the very first time and tell them how idle they're being about something. Um, you want to maybe lead up to that in your relationship with them. You need to have some type of basis maybe to work off of, which means we have a responsibility to build relationships with everybody in our church, not just maybe the people that we feel most comfortable with. So that if I'm called upon to admonish somebody, I can come to them in love and there's a basis for me to work off of. Admonish the idols, caring warning. John MacArthur says it really literally means to put sense into someone's head. To, to talk sense to them in their head, to, to take sense, good sense, and drop it in their head. Like they, they have, they're absent of that good sense, and you need that good sense about this situation. We see some other uses of this word in Acts 20, 31, and we get some idea behind this caring mindset with it. Acts 20, 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This admonishment comes with tears in this passage. First Corinthians four fourteen. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's always faithful to communicate that that aspect of um, parental love, parental care when he's talking to his churches. And he, he, he says this again. He says, I'm admonishing you like you're my children. We would expect parents to demonstrate um, similar type of caring warnings to their children. When they see their children getting involved in something that's going to be harmful to them, we would expect admonishing to happen. But we know that admonishment would come with love. This is actually the word that comes. This is where um, the Greek word for admonish is the um, word for neuthetic. Um, it's the word neuthetic, and this is where um, there's, there's a type of counseling known as neuthetic counseling. We've got like what's known as Christian psychology that kind of delves into a lot of the secular understanding of psychology and how the brain works. Then there's what's known as neuthetic counseling. Neuthetic counseling puts far less emphasis on how the brain works and, and trying to um, place blame maybe for people's actions based on things going on inside of them. Neuthetic counseling addresses people with the word of God, relies on the Holy Spirit, relies on the word and says, here's how real change happens. Here's how real change happens. You have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. Your actions are flowing from sin nature that comes from Adam and Eve, and you need to be dealt with accordingly through the word. And so that word admonish is where we get what's known as neuthetic counseling. It's a different perspective on counseling, um, and I can share with you more about that if you're interested. Um, there's actually a um, church that offers that type of counseling in our area. It's a caring warning, admonish the idol. Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. 
Now, the Greek word here means small-souled. Small-souled. It's someone who has become worried, someone who has become scared, someone who has become discouraged. It's someone who, who is struggling in their soul. It's not necessarily a sin issue, even though we would say uh, worrying um, is a form of sin because we're told not to worry. But it's not necessarily like giving into the flesh about some type of fleshly desire. It's someone who has been affected by circumstances and, and they're, they're struggling because of those circumstances. They become worried about something. They're scared about something. They're discouraged about something. Now think in terms context of what we've already heard in First Thessalonians, we've got people who are being persecuted. And then as chapter 4 told us, we've got people who are losing their loved ones and they didn't know where they were going. That's the whole mindset behind the end of chapter 4. It's that uh, your loved ones are okay. They're with Jesus. He, when he comes back, their souls are coming with him. They'll be reunited with their bodies. But up to that point, there hadn't been a whole lot of teaching about what happens to loved ones that die right now. We heard about the second coming. We know Jesus is coming. But hey, my, my aunt, my uncle, they passed away. And what happens to them now? Because you, you told us to wait for Jesus. Paul has to kind of come back and say, look, everything's okay. This isn't. This didn't catch me off guard. I just forgot to tell you about this part. Maybe a crucial part. I forgot to tell you about this. Um, your loved ones are okay. They're secure in Christ. When, when Jesus comes back, they come with them. Don't worry about it. Encourage one another with these words. But there were people in this church who had become faint-hearted. They were struggling. They were worried. They were scared. And it was kind of hindering their efforts as well within the church. Um, they were kind of starting to kind of stand still. What are we going to do? How do we handle these circumstances? I think you could even label these people as potential quitters. People that are maybe on the verge of saying, all right, I'm done with this. Uh, you know, I thought that when I came to Jesus, things would be better. I thought when I came to Jesus, all my problems would be answered and I wouldn't deal with difficult things like this. And what I find is that when I came to Jesus, maybe things got worse initially. I mean, these people are getting persecuted. Maybe they're losing loved ones because of that persecution. And you had some of them that were saying, um, we, we might be done with this. Potential quitters on Jesus. Potential quitters. We're told to encourage them. The definition for encourage, we are to speak alongside. We are to come beside somebody and speak alongside them. To speak alongside them. We're given this uh, mentality in chapter 4. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He gives instruction about um, loved ones that die, gives them information, and he says, encourage each other with this. We get the same type of idea going on in five, chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. Come alongside them. These people need help being confident. They need help being confident. A couple things that I wrote down that perhaps... These type of people would need to hear from someone who's not struggling in this area. One, they might need to hear that God answers prayer. That God answers prayer. In 1 John, 1 John 5, verse 15, or 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 
This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So someone who's experiencing this may need to be reminded that God answers prayer. That God answers prayer when we pray to him in his will. Secondly, that God secures salvation. That God secures salvation. Sometimes we have people who become discouraged because of past failures. Uh, They become overwhelmed. Their soul becomes overwhelmed because of previous mistakes, previous failures. And we have to be reminded of John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That when we're saved, our salvation is secure and there's nothing that can change that. Nobody can snatch us out of God's hand. There's nothing that we can do to now offend God so much that he would say, I thought I knew you, but now you've surprised me. You're no longer a part of my family anymore. Unfortunately, we have incidences where people try to adopt somebody and then they get that child and they say, oh, not what I thought I bargained for. No longer do I want you. That's not how adoption works into God's family. When God adopts us into his family, he knows all our history. The unique thing is that he also knows all of our future. And when he adopts us, he anticipates and knows any future failures that we have. And they've already been dealt with on the cross. People need to be reminded of that. Past failures do not separate us from God's love. But it can be a source of discouragement for some. God includes us in the resurrection. John chapter 11. We're included in that glorious resurrection that happens in the future. God loves us eternally. Romans 8, 38 through 39. Nothing separates us from his love. God fulfills his will. Romans 8, 28 and 29. It's a cliche passage. Romans 8, 28 gets, gets used a lot. And sometimes we, as Christians, sometimes we want to stray away from those verses that get overused a lot. Oh, Romans 8, 28. I know that. I've heard that all my life. But there's rich truth in Romans 8, 28. That God works good for his children. Somebody who's faint-hearted needs to understand that if they're a child of God, every circumstance that they face... Lost jobs, death of loved ones, death of children, relocations, changes in relationships, parents getting divorced. Those type of situations, God changes them. God takes those negative, bad, evil situations, turns them for good in our life over and over and over again. That's what we have in Romans 8.28. It's a used passage a lot because it's so good. And don't ever let the truth of that passage not take root in your life anymore because it's something you've heard since you were a kid he works everything for his purposes he works everything for the good of his children the faint-hearted have to see that they're faint-hearted because they're not seeing that they become faint-hearted because they're not seeing that persecution is used for good that death is used for good they need to be reminded of that and i'm always quick to 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 lean on some important attributes of god and you see some of those in our room That God is good. We don't just serve a a sovereign ruler of the universe who has power to do things and knows everything. We serve a God who's good. Who uses his power for good. Who uses his knowledge for good. Who uses the fact that he's everywhere for good. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a wise God. Which means that not only does he have a plan, not only is he going to make that plan happen, it's the best plan possible. 
the best plan possible. In all his wisdom, he constructed what should happen and what will happen, and it flows out of his infinite wisdom. He's a good, loving, wise God, and he's sovereign. He's in control. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow to happen. Nothing changes his plan. He doesn't change his mind. What he intended to do has been set in stone since the beginning. He doesn't adapt his plan to what we do. He doesn't change what he wants to do based on what finite creatures like us do. He has a plan in place, and he intends to do it. And it's the best plan possible. In all his wisdom, and all his love, and all his goodness. And the faint-hearted need to be reminded to lean on that during times where they are discouraged. Lastly, help the weak. Help the weak. This may refer to the weaker brother. Paul talks a lot about that in Romans. Those who are saved out of a sinful past where maybe they struggled with things that were definitely a source of sin for them. And now that they're saved, even though the Bible may not condemn those practices, they still have a hard time doing those without feeling like it's sinful. And so they stay away from it and they want to call it sin because they don't know what else to do with it. A good example would be someone who's saved out of a, a, a bad history with alcohol. Someone who had given their life to alcohol, been highly affected by alcohol. Um, it was a source of a lot of other sins in their life. Now they're saved. By God's grace, they've been redeemed. And now they look at alcohol and they say, I can't, I can't touch it. I can't do it. That's sinful for me. Whereas when we examine Scripture... The Bible tells us how to use alcohol and now not to use alcohol. It never condemns the use of alcohol. It never says that it's absolutely wrong every time to partake of wine or partake of some type of alcoholic beverage. It does tell us that we can't get drunk off of it, that the abuse of it is absolutely wrong and sinful. But we would lean, toward, lean here towards the fact that there's, there's freedom to potentially enjoy that in the right way. We don't impose that. We don't say you need to get to the point where you're having an, an alcoholic beverage because you have freedom in Christ. But for those that choose to partake in that, we don't go to them and admonish the idol and say, whoa, whoa, you got a little lazy in this area. Now you're drinking alcohol and we can't have that here. That's not where we go with that. But there are some that have been saved out of something. And it brought a lot of sin into their life, and they can't go back to it. And we need to help the weak in that area. We're, we're told to, to, to give preference to the weaker brother. Which means if I know Topi has an issue with something, I don't invite him over to my house and try to get him over his weakness by partaking in that activity in his presence. I don't invite him over and say, man, I hear you had a tough history with alcohol. As I'm, as I'm drinking my alcohol and, and having a conversation with him. I don't try to get him up to my level of freedom. I help him. I help him see in Scripture truth from Scripture, but I also help him not violate his conscience that God has given him as well. This also could be someone who's weak to sin, someone who's struggling to find victory. This is different. Now, make sure you catch the difference here. This is different from the guy who's idle in the first part. Idle guy doesn't see that he's doing this. Idle guy doesn't recognize that he's giving himself to this sin. Idle guy doesn't necessarily recognize he's broken ranks. Weak God does. Weak guy's raising his hand saying, I need help with this issue. I find myself giving myself to this during the week, and I don't want to. Idle guy says, I hope nobody finds out I'm giving myself to this during the week. Weak guy says, I am weak. I need help in this. 
I'm struggling with pornography. I need help with that. I don't want to do it. I don't want to give myself to it. I need help with that. So it's a different type of ministry. It's a different type of counseling. It's a different type of discussion. I don't need to expose him to his sin. He already sees his sin. So I need to come and and do something different when I help the weak. This also could be in reference to what we see in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 uh, maybe sometimes a, a misunderstood passage, and I'm not saying that to understand it this way is, is completely wrong or to do this would be completely wrong. But in James chapter 5, verse 13, a lot of times this passage is used for if somebody's physically sick, somebody has cancer, um, something like that, you need to bring them to the elders of the church and they're going to pray over them and, and anoint them with oil and pray for that sickness to go away. Again, that, that's a profitable thing to do. We should pray for healing. God has given us the, the liberty and the ability to pray and ask for those type of things. But I think what's going on in James chapter 5 is a little bit different. Verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So you see that connection there with sin and confession. So it seems likely that the sickness, the weakness going on there is one of spiritual nature, not necessarily physical nature. Is someone weak among you? Is someone sick? Is someone having struggles with fighting sin to a different level than maybe what we normally experience? Bring them to the elders. Let the elders pray over them. Let the elders encourage them. Let confession happen where it needs to so that that person can be healed. So we've got maybe the weaker brother. We need to help the weaker brother. We have people that are weak to sin um, or just people that are flat out sick in their sin and need to be encouraged out of it. What does it mean to help? What's the definition for help? Help means to hold on to them. If I'm told to help the weak, I'm told to hold on to them. Hold fast to them. To cling to them. To find them and stick on them. To support them. And you kind of get this this image of, of just sticking on to them like glue. They're weak. They need help. And if they're, they're humble enough to admit that, then we have such a responsibility as a church to take care of them. Galatians 6, when, when a brother falls into sin, we have the responsibility to, to help them, to encourage them, to lift them up. When I taught on Galatians 6 several years ago, we talked about the fact that the image there is what you find with a splint. It's the idea of a broken bone that needs a splint, needs that support, it needs to be held up. So when I had a broken finger um, several years ago, I had to put a splint on it, and I had to walk around with my finger like this all the time. Um, that splint was meant to put it into a position to where it would naturally heal the way that it needed to. So the picture in Scripture is that believers are to act as splints for each other. Somebody comes and says, I'm broken. I'm, I'm, I'm all messed up here. i got some stuff going on in my life. I don't want it there, but I am broken. I need some help. That the Christian brother, the healthy brother says, hey, let me help you out. Let me, let me, let me fix that. Let me splint that for you. Now I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to cling to you. It's going to be like wearing a splint day and night. I'm going to check on you. 
I'm going to make sure that you get back to a healthy condition to where you and me can then go be a splint for somebody else. I'm going to, I'm going to get you back to healthy condition. That's the idea going on here when we're told to help the weak, which gives us the responsibility to identify those that are prone to wander and be proactive. Find those people who are prone to wander in our church and be proactive about helping them stay the course. And in order to help them, they need doctrinal support and instruction. I mean, all these counseling things, admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, all that counseling, all that ministry has to flow from the word. Okay? Um, you've got life experiences that will help, sure. You've got opinions and thoughts on different matters that will help, sure. But if you're helping somebody the way that these passages are talking about, it has got to flow from doctrinal support from the word. These people need truth spoken to them. They need it spoken differently. Idle guy needs it a lot more harsh than weak guy. Faint-hearted guy doesn't need anything harsh. I mean, that guy just needs to be loved on and encouraged so he doesn't quit. He needs to help. He needs help seeing that God is in control of his life. So we we speak the word, but we speak it differently based on their condition at the time. Now there's some helpful reminders in doing this. So we see the three aspects of flock to flock. And then Paul throws in some helpful reminders for us here at the end of this passage. So back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The first helpful reminder for us is that we need to be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. And that is a hard, hard thing to do at times. It's easy to become frustrated and prideful when we're trying to do this type of ministry. It's easy to become frustrated when idle guy doesn't see it like you want him to see it fast enough. When faint-hearted guy continues to be faint-hearted, doesn't get the encouragement that he needs after one meeting. When weak guy continues to commit the same sins over and over, despite the fact that you meet with him over and over and over, it's easy to become frustrated and say, dude, if you're not going to get better, I'm out of here. It's easy to become prideful and say, why can't you be more like me? I gave that stuff up a long time ago. I don't get worried anymore. I don't get scared. I don't do those sins anymore. I'm always aware of my sin. I'm never idle. I never need anybody to come admonish me. Why can't you be more like me? It's easy to get into that situation the more and more we deal with flawed people. It'd be easy for us to say, oh, I I tried to admonish that guy, but he just wouldn't hear it from me. So I moved on. Paul says, you be patient with them all. You recognize that you're here, a part of this church. You're supposed to be here for the long haul until God moves you somewhere else. And so you're here for long-haul ministry with people. We have a lot of work to do to be holy and blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of patience that needs to happen. Minister to them where they are. You adjust your ministry strategy, and I've already kind of talked about that. You adjust your ministry strategy to who you're talking to. How do you approach them? How do you come at them with the word? Are they the idol that needs it in a a heavier dose than the faint-hearted and the weak? I come alongside the faint-hearted. I, I, I hold up the weak. But to some degree, I get in the face of the idol. I get in the face of him and, and, and wake him up because he's blinded. He needs his eyes cleaned. He needs his vision. It's impaired. He needs it fixed. So we, we, we adjust our ministry strategy to who we're talking to. And ultimately, we need to remember all these groups are lacking faith. They're lacking faith in something. Remember, we defined faith as trusting truth. 
Faith is trusting truth. The way we grow in our faith is that we learn more truth to trust in. So new believer has faith. A person that's been saved for five years ought to have more faith because he knows more about the word. He knows more about God. He's got more truth to trust in. These people are lacking faith. And so the, the answer to all three of these people's problems is they need more truth to trust in. And again, that goes back to the fact that the way we counsel is we give them the word over and over and over. It's just how we give it to them that changes. This idea of patience has also helped to remember that it's an attribute of God. We're told to be patient because God's patient with us. We're quick to get frustrated. We're quick to give up maybe on people. Thankfully, God is not the same way with us. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who but who will by no means clear the guilty? We serve a very patient God. He has shown patience to us. He's shown patience to his people for years and years and years and years. We're called to be patient because our Heavenly Father is patient. We're told to exhibit that attribute because our Heavenly Father um, is the source of that attribute. He is the source of long-sufferance. He's the source of patience. And we're to exhibit that with the people that we interact with as well. It's also a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, and it's a character of love, 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is patient. Second helpful reminder is we don't repay evil. Instead, we do good. So we have to be patient, but then we also don't repay evil to people. Now, this isn't just a, a separate saying. He's not steering off on a rabbit trail here. The indication is that In our attempts to minister, some of the response that we get might be evil. People might not appreciate you with trying to admonish them in their idleness. You may get criticized for trying to do that. You may get abused trying to do that. You may have that person go and tell stories about what you tried to do. You may get an evil response when you try to help certain people. And and, and the response that we would want to give is, how dare you? Like, I came here to admonish you or to help you or to encourage you, and this is the response that I get? Well, I got a response for you. That would be our our fleshly tendency, like, hey, I'm trying to do the right thing, and then I get this kind of response? This is not what I expected. Now I got a different kind of response for you. He says, you don't repay evil for evil. You continue, continue, continue to do good. Again, the, con- the connotation here is that they're trying to share the gospel with people that are persecuting them. So they come with good news. They come to say that, um, that Jesus has been perfect for you, that you don't have to do good works anymore to be saved, that you were never to do good works to be saved. That everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. You guys missed it as Jewish people. You missed that everything was a, a picture of Jesus coming. Now we've got full revelation. Here's what the gospel is. These people were like, we're going to kill you for that. We want absolutely no part of that good news that you think you have. And this church is told you don't repay evil for evil. You don't band together as a church and try to fight these persecutors. You willingly lay down your life if necessary for their souls. It's like Stephen who's being martyred and, and he's being stoned to death. And he's, he's praying to God and he says, God, don't hold this against them. Don't hold this against them. 
The same attitude that Jesus had on the cross. We're not to repay evil. Instead, we're to do good. Not just an individual responsibility, though. This doesn't, doesn't just tell individuals, hey, don't do this. He says, as a church, you make sure that no one is doing this. Look what he says. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. This is a corporate responsibility. The responsibility for community behavior is placed on everyone. It's not just okay for me to say, well, I'm doing good to everybody. Now, Ben over there, he tends to do evil to people, but not me. I tend to do good to everybody. As a member of this church, Ben, as a member of this church, if I see him repaying evil for evil, I have a responsibility to go admonish the idol. I have a responsibility to go say, hey, hey, buddy, I think, I think you've been blinded in this area. Like The Bible calls us to this type of mindset, and I feel like you're becoming known for this. It's not just me that I have to check up on. I have a responsibility for this whole community of believers. Make sure that no one is repaying evil for evil. And we can always find comfort in the fact that God ultimately brings justice in Romans chapter 12. This is why we don't have to get angry and frustrated with people that sin against us. Is that God always brings justice. Romans 12, 19 through 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heat burning coals on his head. Not overcome evil, not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We've talked about this passage before that the goal is not to do good to your enemies and make them more mad. That's not what it means to heap coals of fire on their head. You would tend to think, well, that just makes people angry when you do that. So to, to get back at my enemies, I don't do evil to them, I do nice things to them, and that makes them more mad. And it's like putting coals on their head. No, the, the idea of coals in their head was, it was a, a, a vivid picture of repentance. So what my response to evil is, I'm supposed to be good, not to make them more angry, not to, not to rub it under their skin. It's to, it's to, to lead them to repentance. It's, I don't want to get even with you because God is going to get even with you one day. And so I want to draw you to salvation so that that sin is dealt with on the cross and not dealt with on judgment day. Can you imagine, I was thinking about this week, can you imagine what the, what the families that had been affected by the thief on the cross must have felt like if they were there at that crucifixion? If, if, I don't, we don't know what the thief had done, the two thieves that are next to you. We don't know. Obviously, they had done something fairly significant because crucifixion was like the worst thing that you could do as a punishment. So it wasn't like petty theft. I mean, these guys must have been legit bank robbers i mean these guys had done it to the max where it was like all right the only thing we can do with these guys is crucify them because they are so out of control imagine if you were a family member who were who was there thinking justice all right like finally the government has realized this and then you hear this conversation between jesus and the thief and jesus says you'll be with me in paradise as a family member you're like what 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 did he just say like no 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 like, you're, you, you would have had a mindset of, no, this guy's supposed to get what he deserves. But what we have to realize is that God always deals with sin. And what a beautiful picture of imputation happening right before our eyes. Jesus says, you want to be with me in paradise? Go ahead and give me that sin over here. I'm dealing with sin right now. And he takes that guy's sin. So justice still happens. In Exodus 34, he's patient and long-suffering, but he doesn't clear the guilty. God doesn't just 
Okay, well, let's forget you sinned there. We'll just forget about all that. God always deals with sin. He either deals with it with you in hell for eternity or he deals with it on the cross. Our mindset needs to be, let's let him deal with as much sin as possible on the cross. Let me do good to people rather than do evil. I want to do good, draw them to repentance so those evil deeds that they do against me get dealt with on the cross. Not in my vengeance and really not even in God's vengeance. I want them spared from that. Application. How does this look like at Sovereign Hope? I told you that understanding this isn't the hard part. It's not difficult to understand. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. The difficulty is in doing it. It takes time. It's messy at times. It costs you your resources at times. It costs you time with your family. There might be times when it's midnight and you go over to talk to somebody because they're faint-hearted. And you have to leave your family behind. You know, hey, I had this time designated for my family, but I got a brother in Christ who needs me. This is where it becomes difficult because our selfish tendency wants to hold on to our time, hold on to our resources, hold on to our week. And then we'll give a little bit of it on Sunday. Yeah, I'll show up. I'll encourage people. I'll do my part on Sunday. This is a weekly thing. This, this, this type of stuff, this nitty gritty stuff happens during the week. And there's a cost to it, and that's why it's difficult. Admonishing the idol, that, that, that takes some courage to step out and go talk to somebody about their sin because you're sinful. So the, the first reaction is, how dare you come talk to me? You're not perfect. Which is why God gives us instructions about make sure that you're, you've cleaned out your life before you go address somebody else's life. Make sure your motives are right so that you come in humility before you go talk to somebody else about their issues. This is messy. This takes time. But this is, what, this is what Paul says. You have to do this as a church if you want to be at peace. So we're trying to set it up where you guys have these opportunities to build relationships so that you have more and more time with each other to identify when someone is idle, when someone is faint-hearted, when someone is weak. And you've established relationships to where that person will hear you when you come to them. First, obviously, our Sunday gatherings God doesn't need what we do here on Sundays. You know, sometimes the the mentality of the temple was you, you have to go do this because God tells you you have to go to the temple and do this. God commands us to gather together as believers on Sunday. But it's not because God needs this from us. God doesn't need anything from us. God commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because he knows we need this. We need this every week so that we stay encouraged, so that we continue to fight the fight so that we see other believers who are in rank with us doing things the same way that we're trying to do them. So our Sunday gatherings, we meet every Sunday. Thankfully, we're in a building now, and we really can meet every Sunday. We don't have to rely on the schedule of the Freeman Sasser and, and other people that are reserving it. We can meet every week now. And the importance of that needs to be known by all of us, that God has given us this time on Sundays because he knows we need it. Secondly, the city. The city. The city is a great way to maintain communication with people during the week when you can't be face-to-face with them. A lot of us live in different areas. A lot of us have busy schedules. But the city is a great way to, to not have to be on Facebook and deal with all the other stuff that comes with Facebook. The city is just us. It's just us, just our community. And it's a great way for us to be able to post places to or post ways that people can pray for us, post things going on in our life. 
Um, and it's a great way for people to respond to those things so that others in our church know that they're being prayed for. It's a great way to check up on people, see how people are doing. I encourage you to use the city more and more. Connecting points. We talked about these last week. These are things that are now available to you throughout the course of the month that give you opportunities to connect with each other for fellowship. They are not required, nor do we expect you to attend all of them. But we've set it up where our moms are getting together on Wednesday mornings for those that can, just for encouragement and hangout time. That we're going to have a monthly women's dinner where you get together, you leave the kids at home with the daddies, and you just come and you hang out as women in our church. Single, single women and married women coming together once a month. Our men, pizza and theology, two times a month. Where we're meeting downtown at Small Town Pizza. We're, we're hanging out together and we're talking about Jesus together. Um, we've talked about the, the, the singles nights. Every Friday night, we realize that, that you guys don't have families that you have to tend to. That that's the end of the week for you, and you're looking for things to do. And so we want to provide that opportunity for you to hang out with leadership in this church. So every week, a different, or every two weeks, a different um, elder in our church or an elder candidate in our church or someone in leadership in our church is inviting you over to their house to spend time together and to spend time with a maturing believer in our church spend time with his wife and to, to, um, to find encouragement through those type of relationships. So we're continuing to add these type of connecting points. I would encourage you, the master calendar is up and working on our website. If you're ever wondering what's going on during the week, you can go to our church website at sivehope.org, click on the calendar link, and it'll give you our, our Google calendar, and you can kind of see what's going on this week, what can I be involved in. Again, we don't expect you to be at everything. We're not looking to max out your schedule and wear you out on church things. But we are trying to cater to different scheduling needs and provide as many opportunities for you to get together and encourage one another. Our C groups, which we'll be sharing with you more, um, these are the way we try to simplify things in our church so that you can, uh, even yourself, can kind of help say, okay, I'm going to try to really be encouraging to this group of people. Because it can be a little overwhelming, even in a church our size, to say, okay, I've got to find a way to encourage everybody in my church. Our C groups are simply meant to kind of Bring things down to a level to where we can say, okay, this is a little bit more manageable. We do that as elders so that we can kind of help make sure that everybody's being taken care of without it being a little bit overwhelming, saying i got to take care of everybody in our church. And then discipleship. And this is ultimately where we want to go. Discipleship. We said we don't want to schedule this for you. We want discipleship relationships to happen naturally. We want them to flow out of C groups and connecting points. We want Older men and women connecting with younger men and women for discipleship. We want younger men and women praying about it and approaching older men and women and saying, will you please disciple me? Will you pour into me? We want the older men and women praying for our younger believers in this church. Pushing discipleship without flat out saying, hey, can I disciple you? Because we talked about sometimes that can be awkward if the person's like, mm, I don't want you. I'm praying about somebody else discipling me. But instead, we, we, we say, hey, have you considered discipleship? It's really important. You need to know how to follow Jesus. And this is the biblical mandate, according to Matthew 28, that people in our church are supposed to teach you how to follow Jesus. Have you thought about asking somebody for discipleship? People ask me all the time, what do you do for discipleship? How do, how do I, what do I do if I meet with somebody for discipleship? And I've been spending the last few years trying to figure out exactly what God meant when he said, make disciples. 
um, a great resource that I'm trying to make available to you as much as possible. I'm trying to pass on everything that God is showing me in the area of discipleship. That's the matt28project.com website, matt28project.com. On that, I'm posting everything that God is teaching me about discipleship. I would encourage you to go to that website. It's got lessons that you can take and teach to somebody that you're trying to disciple. Um, also on that website, there are books that are, are great tools to use with somebody. And this is kind of where I'm starting to lean more towards in my discipleship, just because I don't always have time to prepare a lesson. If um, Me and Jesse meet a lot now, and I don't always have time to prepare a new lesson to teach Jesse. But one really helpful thing is for me and Jesse to be talking and me say, Jesse, you know, what's some things that, that you're dealing with right now? What are some things you want to know more about? And him kind of sharing that with me and me saying, okay, let's go through this book together. This book addresses those things. Let's read through this together. Let's talk about this together. It's what Mark Dever does at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in um, D.C. He's always just getting together with younger men and they're going through books together. Because he doesn't have time in his schedule to write specific lessons, especially if he's preaching like I do every Sunday. So a book is a great thing to go through with somebody. You don't have to prepare anything. You pick out a book that's relevant to where that person is. And you go through it together and use that as a source of encouragement. There's also um, what we're making available now on that website, Terms to Know. This is stuff that we're doing with our youth discipleship right now. A new believer especially needs to understand big words that the Bible talks about. And so we're trying to make some definitions available on that website. Those are things that you could take and sit down with somebody and simply explain some key doctrinal terms to that person in your discipleship time with them. I mean, that's going to make the Bible come alive to them as they see big words that before they didn't know what they meant. And now they see the rich, deep truth that those words mean. Those are some ways that we can apply that in our church. This whole idea of how do we admonish the idle, encourage the faint heart, and help the weak. It, it involves you being involved in our church. You're engaging here on Sunday mornings. Getting here, if you can, early enough to spend some time fellowshipping together. You stick around. Maybe you invite people to go to lunch with you right after church on Sundays. So you're, you're hanging out with people, getting to know people, knowing how to speak truth to them. You're involved on the city. You're, you're encouraging people on the city. You're posting stuff on the city. You're sending messages to each other to encourage each other during the week. You're coming to connecting points when you're able to so that you can, you can see people on a smaller scale, more uh, age-graded, more um, gender-graded. So that it's not just everybody getting together. That you're participating in that C group mindset where you're, you're saying, okay, someone says in my C group they weren't here this Sunday. I need to check up on them, make sure they're doing okay. And then lastly, discipleship ultimately. We want to be a church that's making disciples. And we want as many people in our church as possible making disciples. I'm going to close this out in prayer and then... Um, I'll give you just a couple of minutes if you want to ask any questions before we go. Um, I would encourage you to begin even applying what we've heard today already by looking at your schedule and see how you can be more involved in what our church is doing, using our website to inform yourself of what things are available. If you've got questions about what we've talked about even today, I'll be here. If you want to ask me specifically about something that we looked at today, I would encourage you to do so. Um, I'm excited about where our church is going. I'm excited about the things that, that God is doing here. Um, I ask for your continued patience that you would continue praying for wisdom, um, specifically in areas like the nursery, that God would continue to give us um, his grace and uh, giving us wisdom to know how to handle those things um, just so that we can 
make sure that all our families and all the members of our families are being taken care of here um, at Sovereign Hope. Don't forget on your way out today, the giving box is in the back. We encourage you to give um, as the Lord has led you to, not out of compulsion, but um, out of a cheerful heart um, based on the commitment that you've made with the Lord um, based on your resources. I'm going to pray for us, and um, again, I'll take any questions that you might have, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you so much for the word. We thank you for the encouragement that Paul has given us through the Holy Spirit this morning. God, I thank you for the church at Thessalonica and the example that they are to us. Father, I pray that we would receive that same instruction today, 2,000 years later, that we would be a church that is faithful to admonish the idol. God, that we would see people that are falling into sin that don't realize it. And God, we would recognize that the peaceful thing is not to ignore it and not cause potential issues by addressing it. But that, God, you'd help us to see that the real source to the, the real path to peace is to address those things, um, to deal with sin in our church. That we would be faithful to encourage those that are faint-hearted, to discouraged. God, that we'd speak truth to them in a way that uh, encourages them and uh, helps them to continue to pursue Jesus. For those that are weak, weak in their sin, um, God, I pray that we'd be able to come alongside them and to hold them up and to restore them and to um, speak truth to them as well. God, give us patience, patience with each other. There are a lot of different personalities in this room, a lot of different uh, perspectives and opinions and interests and ideas. God, help us to be unified. Help us to be patient with each other. Help us to be at peace with each other so that ultimately we can draw others outside of this building to peace with you. God, help us to be faithful to not repay evil with evil but to do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.